Once we get the idea of computing plastic, this is sort of an irrelevant image. It's just having your, having your pillow be a display screen, and then you see whatever you want to see on your pillow. Kind of <laughs> um, now, the, I wrote four books in the Wear series. There was software, then webware. So, software people start building intelligent robots, and then the robots come down to Earth to harvest some human minds by eating brains. And then in webware, the humans, the robots figure out how to do webware engineering and build human copies of themselves. And then in Freeware, the aliens show up in the form of cosmic rays, which when they become decrypted, and you'll have some, some piece of computational plastic, and then suddenly you get some freeware in it, which is an alien personality. And then realware goes on. Anyway, those four books are out um, as a, a tetralogy, and you can actually get this for free. It's also up as Creative Commons. A publisher was annoyed with me that I did this. But <laughs> actually, it's one of those things that's, you never, you only get one line, so you can never tell. It seems like actually the sales are better. Uh, uh, it's So you can either buy it or uh, get it for free. Now, another big concern of mine is telepathy. So I'm just going to mention a few things in passing here that I'm obsessed with. And one of the one of the mysterious things about language is that I can stand here and make this series of sort of grunts and tweets, and you get sort of an image of what's going on inside my head. And that we can talk at all really is telepathy, that we can have cell phones is telepathy. It's, it's amazing that we can pass thoughts from each other. But we'd like to kick it up a notch, and that's the dream of having some more high-level kind of telepathy. Um, and that's something I've often written about in my novels, doing it with quantum mechanics or with radio transmission of some kind. And instead of just getting a copy of somebody's thoughts, you can actually maybe go, it's like a, a web link, you can go and access it in their mind. And I, I did a drawing of this. There's a, a man and a woman here, and they're in telepathic contacts. contacts. I drew a thoughtful little It's a little bit easier, maybe, to see there what's going on. So, see, that's his head and her head are linked there. This yin yang thing. I actually have a show. I started painting about 20 years ago because I got tired of just doing the digital thinking thing. And so, there's a, a show of my paintings in uh, in the mission on Valencia Street. There's a, a bookstore called Borderlands. I'm sure many of you know about it. It's a premier science fiction bookstore cafe. So you can see these paintings up until March. Here's uh, um, biotech is a big thing. They we used to talk about nanotechnology, and really, I think there was at one point there's this idea of there being little tiny gears, you know, like a trillionth of a meter across, and that's not the way you're going to make things that are really small. I mean. Mother Nature is already doing it, doing nanotech. The true nanotech is biotech. So it's getting tiny, getting the molecules to do what you want. You're not going to make them do it, but try to put them on a assembly line with a belt. 
we're going to get them to do molecule things. And that's biotech. Now, I think it's probably safe to think that in a hundred or at least in 500 years for sure, we won't be using machines pretty much at all anymore. Everything we'll be doing will be things that we grow. And uh, like the houses that we live in, you'll get this seed like the size of a pizza and you'll push it into the ground and water really a lot and then you'll get a house and it'll be this sort of pumpkin sort of thing and it'll have, uh, it'll have, you know, the bathroom will just be this sort of little pond on the wall and it's, you know, it'll have water for you. It'll uh, pick up any radio. It'll have some wires that it extracts from the soil, it'll extract metal from the soil and give you uh, internet access, so you're still using that kind of thing. Uh, it's the house tree. And then, obviously, we'll want to have wings. Okay, so that's kind of a picture. Uh, something, even things like knives. You might say, if there's no machine tech, can you get a knife? Well, you can have a knife plant. I mean, why does that keep you hard? You know, there's a lot of iron ore in the soil. You grow it, you know, then you cut it off and you get it. And I wrote a couple of novels about a future where everything's biotech. One was Fracking an Elixir that was set in the year 2003. I published that. I published that, I think, in 2002, right around there. And then my most recent book, The Big Aha, is also set in a biotech world. Um, I really see that as something that's going to happen. Um, this is a painting I did to sort of imagine a scene in Frack of the Elixir. Uh, not sure how well this shows up in here, but uh, I wonder, wonder if we could kill this light here. Maybe not. Uh, this is a sort of city where we've got buildings that are these huge organic grown plants. Um, One idea, I like to push things further. Earlier today, somebody was saying, well, how can people keep writing science fiction? Because now the future has already happened. But, <laughs> I mean, the future of the 40s has already happened. <laughs> but it's, you just have to keep going there. It's like science fiction is never going to be easy. I mean, they're thinking, well, we've thought about all the things that are cliches and that I've always known about, you know, robots and spaceships. But the hard things in science fiction are sort of exciting things. If you're a professional science fiction writer, what you spend your time doing is trying to, you know, go out there. You know, it's like you're a surfer. I'm out in the surf every day. I've been out there for metaphorically. Been out there for 40 years, you know, every day, trying to go further out, looking for the bigger waves. And they're out there, but you have to make an effort. And one thing that you do is, uh, well, you just look at the things around you and you extrapolate and say, well, how can I push this? We have this tendency as humans to sort of take for granted the way things are. I think things are always like this. You know, things aren't going to change. Things always will be like this. But things weren't like this and they're not going to be like this in five more years. Everything is going to keep changing. Another sort of kind of opposite side of that point is people aren't going to change. I mean, we're exactly the same kind of people that lived in the Middle Ages. 
you look closely, I'm a big fan of the paintings of Peter Brutal. And you look at the crowd scenes, you look at the people, you look at their faces, what they're acting like. They're really the same as the people you see now. We're never going to be these impossibly good people in Star Trek pajamas, you know. It's not going to happen. We're going to be sleazy, you know. We're going to be greedy, we're going to be lustful, you know. And that's okay. That's, that's human nature. It's, uh, there's no reason to get too ascetic and say, we're going to cast aside our bodies and be these pure, flickering flames, you know. We're going to be funky people, and that's not going to change. That's, uh, Oh, the reason I got into this thing now, though, I wanted to talk about some of my future ideas. One idea I like is a notion I pushed a little bit. I wrote two novels called Post Singular and Hylozoic. And that's a notion that hasn't been pushed very hard in science fiction. The idea that everything in the world is alive. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, suppose I take that literally. Uh, there actually is a philosophical doctrine called hylozoism, not so well known as it could be. And it's the idea that even a, even a pencil is alive, a rock is alive. And then you say, well, what does that mean? It's not crawling around, it's not eating, it's not breathing. In what sense is a rock alive? Well, I thought of one way to think about it. Is, uh, let's jump up here. Is the idea that if we think of everything being quantum mechanical. The thing is, here's a scene, but underneath the scene is uh, what we're actually made of is a quantum mechanical wave function. So there's this uh, continuous wave function underlying the world with this information pattern. And even a rock has that nature. Okay? Even the rock has Buddha nature. Even the rock, the rock is actually a quadrillion balls connected by vibrating springs. And uh, it's like jelly, it's shaking all the time. You can do all the computation you want. So that's this notion that I went with in Hylozoic. Uh, that book, uh, the first book, it was a duology. I didn't want to push it into a trilogy because I was scared they weren't going to sell it on. I wouldn't be able to sell the third one. So what I did on the last page of Hylozoic, I had somebody get into this rap and they just told the whole story of what would have happened. <laughs> but uh, Post Singular actually did fairly well. That's an all that's set in San Francisco, and it's sort of these, these punk rock type of people. And one way, I, one reason I picked that title, Post Singular, was this was the time where you first saw the popularizing word singularity, which is where Vinci had first coined some years before. And I was like, well, look, this is, I'm a science fiction writer. We should own the word singularity. You know, why, why are you know, these engineers taking it and saying it's their word? <laughs> you know, singularity Institute. He's making money off of it, and I'm not. <laughs> so I said, let's imagine getting past it. So then I said, I'll write a book called Post Singular. So then uh, that, that made me happy to do that. <laughs> There's a period when science fiction writers were a little afraid of the singularity. They said, well, how can we write about that? You know, it's not robots and spaceships, you know, it's something different. And then there's a writer called Charles Strauss, who I greatly admire. Um, he's, well, he's younger than me, I don't think you can call him a younger writer anymore. But 
he wrote a book called Accelerando, and in there he just went for it and just took it through all the stages of the singularity, you know, the world building, robots, uh, as smart as us. There's a great thing in Accelerando where they're sending a crew of people, you know, to someplace like Elvis and Colorado, but it, it takes so long. What they've done is encode the people's personalities inside a piece of machinery the size of a Pepsi-Cola can. <laughs> and so they feel like they're in there, and it's, it's being pushed by some giant megawatt laser. Anyway, but uh, no singular. And then in the Highland that's when I said, okay, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do the novel I always wanted to write, where all the objects are alive and we can talk to them. And that's sort of fun. Anyway, so we can do that if everything is quantum. Now, my real goal that I wanted to talk about today is cosmic consciousness. Um, that's, you know, well, it's sort of like being high, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're high, you know, but you're, you're in, in contact. And so now I'm going to get sort of a didactic on your ass and, <laughs> and put a few words up here. So I have this friend called Nick Herbert, who, uh, he's a very cool guy. Uh, you can find this talk on, on, online, by the way, and you can click on that link there if you wanted to. Anyway, Nick says, uh, okay, so this is the, the big aha, this is kind of the key aspect in my new novel, the big aha, so I'm going to talk about this for about 10 more minutes, and then we can go out and eat. So, um, in quantum mechanics, there's these two processes, there's what they call Schrodinger's wave equation, or the universal wave function, and there's this smooth kind of thing, this undulating wave thing that's just evolving in a deterministic, smooth way. And then there's the other thing, is when you go and measure something, instead of being in this smooth, undulating wave of, you know, probabilities and so on, suddenly, bam, you know, it's either yes or no, it's alive or dead, it's zero or one, and it's sort of discontinuous and seemingly sort of random. And so there's these two processes posited by quantum mechanics, the sort of smooth process when you're not really bothering things, like you're in the restaurant, you haven't decided what to order, you're just spaced out, you're mellow, and then the waitress is leaning over you, what do you want? And you're like, oh God, I have to decide, you know? And so then suddenly, you had this smooth anticipation of a meal, and then suddenly you have to collapse your quantum wave function. Before you know it, you've got something really horrible, you know? <laughs> you're stuck with that choice. <laughs> so, you can find this process in your mind. There's this feeling, if you look into your consciousness, what's going on, there's this sort of smooth, mellow mode that you can be in. And then there's this thing of deciding something really precise and specific. Now, I think of these two modes as a cosmic mode and a robotic mode. Now, I would argue, and I think if you pay attention to what's going on in your mind, you might come to agree with this, that you oscillate between these two ways of thinking. And it's something that we do, I don't know, maybe a couple of times per second. And I think of it as being a little bit like radar. You sort of, uh, you blend out, you, you smooth in your cosmic, it's all cool. Then you draw back and say, wait, what time is it? Where do I have to go? 
Are they looking at me? Space out, and if you couldn't space out, then you'd be—you wouldn't be able to really understand anything. You sort of merge in, and you you enter into the reality around you, and you become part of it, and then you get an understanding of it, and then you snap back, and you put words on things, you put names on things. So you need both those processes to cognitive body, and so you're doing this constant oscillation. Now, naturally, though. Uh, so there's the cosmic mode. The guy's merged into the universe. And uh, so again, so there's the cosmic mode, there's the robotic mode, there's the shimmering center of possibility, there's the specific thoughts, there's the universal wave function, uh, there's the collapse, the unobserved, the nameless, okay, and then there's the measured and nailed down. So there's these two modes. And uh, here's the guy in cosmic consciousness. And the idea is, the idea in my novel would be, uh -huh, people figure out a way to jam the social process. They do it using, well, the thing if you're a science fiction writer, you have to get some gimmick, uh, I call it a bogosity generator. <laughs> <laughs> a bogosity generator to make you know, the things that you want to have happen happen. So in, in the big aha, uh -huh, they have something called quantum weather. So we've got the double buzzword. It's quantum and wetware. Wetware is another way of talking about you know, the organism or the, the state, the biotech of your own body. So they use quantum wetware and they find a way to jam open their switch so they can stay in the cosmic model. And that's good because it's like they're it's like they're tripping sort of, but without false drugs. You know, they're just in the state of being high. Now, something that happens then is they also develop telepathy. Because if you're merged into the cosmic uh, universal wave function, it's easy enough to believe that you know, your thoughts and my thoughts can be mixed together. Now, there's an interesting point about this. One of the things that I do in science fiction too is to keep in mind the, uh, the limitations imposed by actual physics. And one limitation is uh, one problem with telepathy is if it acts over, you have action over a distance, then it seems like you can get faster than light communication. And you could say, well, suppose I want to want to say that you can't do that. Suppose I want to hang in there and keep keep relativity theory and say we can't have faster than light communication. Well, Nick Herbert, this great sage of Boulder Creek. He's this sort of hermit, weird guy. I have to go visit him every now and then. And then uh, he says, well, you can have telepathy as long as you don't remember what you said to the other person during the telepathic session. And I think that's actually, that's a nice way to write about telepathy, actually. It's sort of like when you have, oh, with your lover, you have some loving conversation, you just merge together, and then Afterwards, well, what did we say? You know, you don't really even remember specifically. It's like a dream. You don't remember the details. You remember the feeling, but you don't necessarily remember the details. So that's the gimmick that I use for telepathy in this book. Now, uh, 
Now, one of the things in the big aha, you might say, what is the title of that? Well, there's this hope you, you have your whole life. You're a seeker. And I think many of you, if you come to a conference like this, you're still looking for some answer. And you feel like, well, I'd like to find the ultimate answer, the big aha, you know, the big zap. I want the final answer. And uh, when I was younger, I had some hopes of finding the big aha. And now I've come to think of it in a sort of different way. It's sort of the old, oh, it's like the Zen bait and switch trick, you know? You see, I can teach you the big aha, and then you go there and you meditate and you study and you think. And then they say, well, that's the secret. You know, you're like, what's the secret? The secret is that you're alive, you're in this world, you're in the present now moment. That's all there was, that's all there is. That's the big aha. And that's, if you can wrap your mind around that, that can be sort of, it's sort of nice. You can see the big aha. <laughs> you focus on something, you know, you're in the present, you say, wow, this is, you know, that's, that's an incandescent light. <laughs> uh, pretty soon we're going to go outside and we're going to see the sunset. That's going to be good too. Now, um, so, what's the big aha? There's nothing complicated about it. All you have to do is pay attention. Or not. That's the same thing. It actually doesn't matter if you pay attention. Because the big aha comes just the same. It's everywhere. So, I think you've had a long day here, and now I've shown you the secret of life, so... <laughs> Maybe I'll stop there and have a few questions if anybody has. Thanks. Thank you. 
known this for a long time now. Um, one thing you can certainly get from scientists is uh, buzzwords. It's quite screaming with buzzwords. If you need the buzzwords to your velocity generators. <laughs> and to some extent, science fiction is a little bit of a fairy tale. We pretend that it's about science, but really we're writing about, oh, we're writing about flying carpets and magic cloaks, you know, and uh, demons and angels. These archetypal things that, that sort of speak to the, the, the deeper longings in your nature. And then uh, in fantasy writers and science fiction writers, sometimes they're doing the same sorts of things, but we, we dress up what we're doing in different ways. In, in fantasy, the difference is, in fantasy, the explanations don't have to make sense at all. <laughs> and in science fiction, we like to have that there's, there's more of a, a logical kind of this is pseudoscience apparatus that we build up to have sort of a, a unified explanation of it. So, uh, but I do get a lot from science, and it's you never know what's going to sort of zap you. If you if I just look on Twitter, sometimes I'll see something that's, that's very useful. Yeah. In in one of your earlier books, um, Saucer of Wisdom, yes. as I remember, you kind of summed up a number of. Uh, Themes and ideas from the previous novels, and it was in kind of a fictional context as well. Yeah, Saucer Wisdom is one of my stranger books. Um, it was marketed as a non fiction book of speculations of the future. It came out right out of the lane. But it was actually, if you look at it a little more carefully, it's a novel, and it's the setting of the novel is supposedly one of the characters is called Rudy Rucker. And, uh, <laughs> So Phil Dick used to do that kind of thing, so I was, I was riffing off that. And then he has a friend who uh, was supposedly abducted by UFOs many times, and the UFOs took him to the future, and then he saw what they're doing in the future, and he came back and told Rudy Rucker what he saw, and then that's how this book came to be written. And actually, Wired Books was going to pay for this. There was, Wired Magazine was starting a books division, and they didn't know the book market very well. They didn't know how little money they'd been paying me. <laughs> so, they gave me like $50,000 to write this book. And uh, the thing is, the way I closed the deal, I went to the pitch meeting, and I brought with me a friend of mine who, who was my roommate in college, and he had hair down his shoulders and a full beard, and he basically looked like a homeless person that you'd see, you know, at, at the medium as for money. And so I said, well, this is my friend Frank Shook, and he's the guy who got abducted by the UFO. <laughs> and all the stories in this book are true, because Frank told me what has happened to him when he wrote it down. And then my friend, he sits there about five minutes, and I can't take it, I gotta get out of here. He's actually a complete psycho of me. And they're like, oh, we really want to do this book. <laughs>
Yeah. You mentioned quite frequently with this discussion about how we use an absolute living structure. Do you believe that a more biological future for humanity might be more beneficial than, let's say, artificial intelligence? Oh, yeah. So the question is, would it be nicer to live in a biotech world than in a, a mechanized world? And it would seem so. I mean, there's this natural, pleasant vibe to living things. On the other hand, I mean, viruses are living things, and, you know, stinging jellyfish are living things. So, I mean, there are living things that it's not so great to have them around. So, uh, but I think, in principle, I mean, the whole image, it's not a reason that you can think of it. The machine age is being soulless and sort of crushing. It's, if, if we can be reasonable about it. And sometimes there's a fear, a fear of biotech, this idea that we might, you know, tweak the wrong gene and suddenly have some horrible sludge that eats the whole world. But the thing is, that's, that's actually very unlikely. And the reason being that every organism out there in nature has been trying to take over the whole world. For millions of years. <laughs> it's like there's this alley that we're going into, and you know, we made some little toy that we're going to put in there. We're going to think, oh, that's going to kill everybody in the alley. And Mother Nature is a bitch. <laughs> so I don't think we should be scared of breaking it.